This morning, we are going to be continuing in our series. Um, Student Ministries is dismissed if it didn't make its way out there. Um, So you are free to leave. Everyone else, you're not so lucky. You must... You must stay. Uh, so this morning we're actually going through to continue our series, our short series that we have, um, The God I Don't Understand. Um, I hope that this series is something that is really useful um, for you guys. Um, it has been for me just kind of thinking through a lot of big topics, a lot of big big things, and and and. There are things about God that we don't understand. And honestly, if we did, he, if we could understand everything about God, he would not really be worthy of worship. So uh, he, he would not be our God. So it's a, a very helpful thing to stop sometimes and to go through some of these difficult things, even if you're very settled in your own mind, to go back through and to rehash through some of these topics and ideas. And, and I'll, I'll tell you this, just being... Um, very transparent up here in the pulpit. It's not easy to go through some of these topics because there are so many different things, so many different questions, and this isn't much of a conversation. It's very one-sided, and so, you know, it's not going to fit for everybody. Um, last week's message, you know, Char, Char preached that message, and then he left the country, if that gives you an idea. I don't know if the two are related, but um, no, in all, in all seriousness, it's not, uh, they aren't the easiest things to go through, and um, the, the idea is also not to confront you with an issue that causes you to, to start questioning or doubting your faith. However, it should be, our faith should be something that we go back through, that we think through. We should be thoughtful about the things that we hold to. And that's the difference between a doctrine, something we've thought through, we've digested, we have for ourselves, walked through so that we now understand what we believe, and a dogma, which is something someone tells you and you just believe without thinking about it. And we don't want to be in the dogma area. We want to be in the doctrine area, right? We want to think through these things. We want to have intelligent conversations with each other, and I pray that that's happening with all of you. Uh, And also understand, especially with a topic like we're going to cover today, we are not going to exhaust everything. This is the beginning of talking through some of these topics. So we will start with a framework, essentially. We're building a framework for us to continue to have good conversations. Uh, so, so don't think that we're going to exhaust everything concerning a topic, especially since uh, some of these topics we're going over, especially one for today, has been uh, a topic that's been discussed, debated for literally thousands of years. So uh, it's not something that we're going to come to the end of this morning, but I do pray that as you guys have your conversations, just in everyday life, you're interacting with each other, just like, wow, that was, that was pretty crazy. What do you think about that? Just to have good conversations and have them grounded in the word uh, is something that we want to make sure is happening. Uh, I do want to say at the end of the series, uh, I do believe it's on the 26th of May, we want to do something that we've, we have done in the past, we want to start doing it again, so we're going to have a question and response time. Um, I'd say a question and answer time, but that seems kind of arrogant for some of these questions. That here, you'll get the definitive answer that morning. But uh, we'll have a question and response time so that you can send in your questions and we'll be able to kind of digest those things. And, and then uh, I believe it is going to be the, the three of us, uh, Char, Max, and myself, that will be able to be up here and answer some of those things. So um, 
we will have more information on how you get those questions out there, but do you want to say this is all leading towards something like that? So uh, today, we are going to be talking about, we're going to be discussing understanding evil. If you were to look at this in a theology textbook, this would go under the category of, or the topic, subject heading of, the problem of evil. And I think that calling it that, the problem of evil, kind of encapsulates the whole discussion. What do we do with this thing evil? The idea of evil, the concept of evil, what do we do with it? Because as we, as we learn more about the Lord and we learn more about his plan for the world, we learn more about who he is, the more that we see evil is an invader in that plan. And so what's the deal with evil? And we call it the problem. It's the problem because we have to delve into some of these things. And, and yeah, we are going to delve into some of the philosophical uh, sort of things, some somewhat cosmological um, in dealing with some of those things. But what I'm hoping today is we'll be able to look at this topic we can easily be overwhelmed with and be able to find a way to, to kind of focus our discussion in an area that's going to be helpful for us to think through some of these big ideas. So we're not going to be going super, super deep. This is not a seminary-level class, but what I'm hoping for is that you guys will, will gain that, that level of understanding to be able to have an intelligent conversation with each other and to continue talking about it. Um, and this may be something that you have really questioned, either in the past or, or even now, where you're just saying, hey, I just, I, I just know that there's an answer here, but I don't know what it is. And so hopefully we'll be able to... to um, to really start that conversation together. So as we begin, though, we kind of have to start at the very, very, very beginning. And when we say the word evil, we have to define it. Now, what's tricky about this particular topic, before we even get to the defining part, our world and our culture actually questions whether this thing exists to begin with. So before we even get to a definition, we have to have that conversation. Evil, and we'll see how it links up with the idea and the concept of sin, that does that exist? So if we just did a a yes or no question, does evil exist? Many of us in this room, by quality of probably being here and attending this, we would say at the very essence of it, yes, there is evil. We're not even going to talk about good. That's a whole other thing. Does evil exist? Does sin exist? And for us, it's easy. We say, okay, let's move on. But you know what? When we're having this conversation, this is the kind of conversation that comes up with unbelievers all the time. And so we can be settled in our own minds, but are we able to offer these, um, these types of conversations to those who are questioning, who have no framework at all, who don't know God, who you might be talking to a neighbor and you might mention something about, you know, something in the news. They say, oh, yeah, that, whatever, that dictator or whatever, he's evil. And they might say, I don't believe evil exists. It's kind of an awkward response sometimes, maybe from neighbor. Maybe have that kind of conversation. Well, what do you say now? You're like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, that, that seems like such a weird place to start, but that's where we have to start. I have an article, because uh, I was looking around for something. I don't, I don't like to just find a Christian or a, an apologist that, that answers it for me. I want to hear what someone 
says they believe before someone else tells me what someone else believes. Does that make sense? Uh, so I actually found a really good article. Um, maybe we'll, we'll link this in the podcast. We'll drop the link to the, to the article there. Um, it's from Slate.com. Uh, the author, the writer, columnist, Ron Rosenbaum. This was from 2011, September 30th, 2011. And the topic is, uh, basically boils down to, does evil really exist or is it a physical thing? Something that happens in the brain. And so the, the title of this, does evil exist? Neuroscientists say no. So there you go, you already have your answer. Most of us actually don't even go any further into any of these articles. They're like, oh man, neuroscientists say that it's false. If you read, you start to see some of their ideas. I'm, I'm going to read through parts of it. It's a, it's a long article. It's a good article. Um, it starts out, is evil over? Has science finally driven a stake through its dark heart? Or is it at least emptied, or at least empty the word of its useful meaning, reduce the notion of a numinous, non-material, malevolent force to a glitch in a tangible cluster of neurons in the brain? Yes, according to many neuroscientists, who are emerging as the new high priests of the secret of the psyche, explainers of the human behavior in general. Phenomenon attested to by recent torrent of pop science brain books, and he gives a couple of books here. Um, Not secret in most of these works is a disdain for metaphysical evil, meaning just the concept and the idea of an intangible concept of evil. So scientists hate that, is what he's saying. It's regarded as an antiquated concept that's done more harm than good. What's interesting, he has no problem using the word good, which seems disingenuous, because then we get rid of evil, and what does good mean anymore? But I digress. They argue that the time has come to replace such metaphysical terms with physical explanations, malfunctions or malformations in the brain. doesn't give any reason why, he just says it's time to replace it. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit just to grab a couple of things here. Um, he says, of course, people still commit innumerable bad actions, but the idea that people make conscious decisions to hurt or harm is no longer sustainable, say the new brain scientists. So this whole concept and idea of evil in general is being dismantled, and what they are replacing it with instead is this idea that evil is a physical malfunction of our own brains, which fits in very nicely in our, in our culture that we have currently with uh, the state of mental health, just how it's discussed. It's really nice to just take the whole concept of evil and just jam it over there, whether it really fits or not. But it makes people feel more comfortable. Because then they can medicate it, and they feel okay. Oh, don't we, what we can, right? Now, if you find an article like this, I challenge you, you have to read the whole thing. Because if you stopped here, you don't actually pick up on what is really being discussed. Uh, he goes on, and reducing pure evil, uh, pure, I'm sorry, evil to a purely neurological glitch or malfunction in the writing, uh, wiring of the physical brain and eliminating the elements, element of freely willed conscious choice have neuroscientists eliminating as well moral agency personal responsibility. So if we remove this idea that evil is, is something to be dealt with and instead make it a malfunction of your brain, we are now removing responsibility from people. And they say that this is a good thing. We're removing the idea of moral agency. Are those who commit acts of cruelty, murder, torture, just victims of themselves? 
or victims themselves, of a faulty part in their head that might fall under a factory warranty if the brain were a car. He goes on, and they go, he goes into a discussion of Hitler, where they say, like, Hitler actually might have picked up some disease in World War I from a mosquito, and that's actually what led to him being a horrible dictator, doing horrible acts against people that was actually some sort of physical thing wrong with his brain. It would be consolatory, if not comforting, if we could prove that what made Hitler Hitler was a malfunction in human nature, a glitch in the circuitry because it would allow us to ex- exempt normal, that's in quotes, human natural, nature, ours for instance, from having Hitler potential. And there it is. See, we have to find some sort of physical malfunction for what evil is so we can actually remove ourselves from the guilt that humanity in general carries. Do you see that? The point is not to really find an answer to these things. It's to use science like a salve, to apply that to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. He goes on to talk about this, and this happened relatively close to the, the Norway shootings. If you guys remember, if you don't, you can look it up. But um, even, he says, even one of the, uh, I think it was Hitchens he mentions in here, uh, describes that, oh, yeah, yeah. He mentions that he was evil incarnate. There was a, oh, sorry, it was a New York Times article that said it was, he was evil incarnate. And they start to talk about this idea about evil incarnate and what that could mean. And then he highlights that uh, he says one of his um, colleagues, Christopher Hitchens, wrote in a response to the obituary for Osama bin Laden, Hitchens admits wishing he could avoid using that simplistic but somehow indispensable word, but he feels compelled to call whatever motivated bin Laden a force that absolutely deserves to be called evil. So even a lot of these folks who are dedicated atheists, when actually, when push comes to shove, they have to use the word evil because they don't have another word for it. And so as you see, as the article goes on, he unravels his own point. And if we continue on towards the end, But in the summer camp in Oslo, again, talking about this thing, Bredovic is stalking victims for hours. He'd shoot one or more, and according to survivors, not register anything emotionally, right? Uh, He just continued trudging forward, looking for more. He saw the consequences, the blood gushing, heard the screams, and he just kept going. Some will try to say this is sociopathic or psychopathic or zero degrees of empathy. Another... Uh, exculpatory uh, cop-outs, but fueled by his evil ideas, Bredovic kept going to echo Bullock, who was that author he quoted before. If we can't call him evil, who can we? Most people are never going to read all the way to the end to find out in the very last paragraph this guy undoes his whole, he undoes his whole argument in saying, I still don't know what we can call this other than evil. And so many scientists will boast, we've figured this out, we have determined what this is, but when it comes to the actual essence of facing evil, they have no answers. 
evil, if you're to look at the dictionary definition, morally reprehensible, sinful as a synonym, or wicked. Another definition would be impulsive, arising from actual or imputed bad character, conduct of a person with an evil reputation. Another word would be uh, archaic, but we don't use that. Dif- uh, it would be archaic. We don't use it anymore, but it would be um, inferior is another word to use for evil, which I think is an important one to bring back. Um, pernicious, causing harm. Uh, even, even down to the point of unlucky being one of the words used to help to define evil. What's interesting is no one has to have evil defined when they see it. When they see it, they will say that is an evil thing, which is what that columnist was confronted with. So we as Christians, um, we don't always use the word evil. Oftentimes we'll use the word sin, and, and they're very close in their definition. They're not exactly the same, but they're very, very close. And I think as we talk about it, it'd be good to kind of bring both of those words together to help us talk about some of these things. Uh, so evil, let's use this working definition. Perversion, deviation, uh, deviation from the perfect or the complete. And sin would be to miss the mark of perfection. So you see it's ever so slightly different. But for how we're using it today, we can almost use them interchangeably. As we continue to talk about evil, there's two different categories of evil also. There's natural evil. So natural evil would be something like uh, someone gets a mosquito bite and it leads to malaria. That's a natural imperfection that takes place. Right? It's not the intention. The human body is not intended to have that disease, but it somehow does through a natural means. Or a severe storm that causes flooding would also be regarded as a natural evil. What's interesting is, what is that called on an insurance form? An act of God, which is very interesting that we have attributed that to God himself. And that, for some reason, is an okay definition. Or we could even say, just in general, it's an accident. It's something that wasn't intended. No one, no one forced that thing to happen, but it, but it does. Right? No one morally made a choice, and that takes place. Which actually is the other type of evil, a moral type of evil. Stealing a sandwich falls in that category of evil, moral evil, telling a lie, all the way up to just randomly murdering the pizza guy. We would regard as falling in that category. This is a moral evil. This is something that someone chose to do, and its definition would be evil. So the one question we have to start out with, now that we, I think that we can determine pretty easily from looking around the world that there is evil, and we have a nice little framework of talking about different types of evil, where did it all come from? Well, in the opening chapters of Genesis, which if you're going through the year of biblical literacy, you will have read a long time ago, back in January, it records the fall. Now, the fall is, it was that moment when sin first was accomplished by humans. That, however, is not the actual origin of sin. Lucifer, who was created as a servant of God, he was a cherub, he was the first to sin. We have a few verses to, to look at here. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 13. 
Oh, you are fall, or I'm sorry, how you are fallen from the heavens, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, O oh, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. This was Lucifer saying this in his heart. Ezekiel. Chapter 18. How shall not live? He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son and sees all his sins that he has done. Likewise, he does not eat of the mountains, lift up his eyes to the idols of the house. I might have actually written down the wrong verse for that. But since I wrote it, I didn't do anything about it. Uh, for, we'll just pretend that didn't happen. First John chapter 3. I'll find the actual passage here in a second. <laughs> Sorry? Bingo! 28. It was just my handwriting. Thank you. Ezekiel 28. You were in need in the garden of God. Very precious stone was your covering. And he names off a bunch of stones. Craft and gold were your settings and your gravings. On that day you were created, you were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You you corrupted your wisdom from the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So this is God casting out this one who sinned. And notice it says in there that he was righteous until unrighteousness was found in him. 1 John 3. First John chapter 3, verse 18. Ah, 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what we have is the origin of sin happening with Lucifer, not with humanity. And I think that's important to note. Because sin was already there. It was already present. It already existed. It already was in operation before humans were ever created. However, because we were created in the image of God as representatives of God to rule on earth, when humans did sin, it had a ripple effect out into the rest of the universe. And so God himself, having placed man and woman in the garden, 
to rule. Instead, they were cursed. That curse became pervasive. It was a curse because of humanity, but then that curse went out into the whole world. So things no longer are sustained indefinitely or in a perfect state. They're now in a state of breaking down, which all of us know. And here, this is where it becomes really interesting, because for us, all of us, we have always lived and existed in a universe that is imperfect, that is actually something that we start out with. The origin of natural evil and the origin of moral evil for us started in the garden, but it is something that we have always seen as normal. And I think the more that we think about that, the more we can understand that this is most likely the reason we have a difficult time really talking about evil, at least from a place where it can be evaluated properly. And so the biggest problem that we actually have is perspective. And so from perspective, every human being who's ever been born has been born into a corrupted world. That is our starting point. It's actually a personal and assumed starting point. It's our default setting. And that's the problem. Our problem starts with our own perspective. And we have to acknowledge that we have a perspective bias when we look at evil. Because for us, it would be hard to think of a world or a universe that didn't have the effect of evil in it. Think about it. Everything we do and everything we prepare is based on this idea that something's going to break, something's going to fall apart. Very few of you left all of the elements of lunch on the cutting board at home to expect them all put together when you got home. There's lunch. It's ready for us. Why don't you leave the mayonnaise and the meat sitting out when you leave in the morning? Because what happens to it? It goes bad. That's actually a very good way to put it. It goes bad. Things don't naturally just stay the same or get better. They naturally go bad. And that's part of the curse. That's actually how the curse worked its way out in the rest of the world, in the universe. Yahweh's starting point, God's starting point, however, is from absolute perfection. He never had that event take place for him in eternity. He still is in the standpoint of perfection. And so from God's perspective, he can actually see how evil works. He can see how good works. He can have that proper perspective, and we have to really work at it. Because we're created in the image of God, we have the idea of abstract thought. We can try to drum it up, and we can think about it and kind of put those things together. But it's a struggle for us to try to put those things together. Perfection for us is a complete and total abstract thought. Very little basis in reality for us. So we actually get now to the, to the questions of the problem of evil. So if you were to talk to someone and you were to say, Hey, what, tell me some of your thoughts about God and evil and things like that. It, invariably, it would come back to this. And this is sort of the, the basis of this, this here. Is God good? Or is he powerful? 
And can he be both? This begins that conversation. So think about that. If God is good, most of us would say that he is. Even atheists would say that in general, people would believe that their God is good, right? Well, if God is good and and he is all-powerful, then why is there evil? Because for us, if we were sitting in a place we saw something falling apart, we would go and fix it if it was something important to us. So we'd say that, that that's for us the basis of something good. And so we look at it and we say, well, if God is all-powerful, then how come he isn't keeping all these things from falling apart? He therefore can't be good. So you have to make a choice. At least this is what a lot of people would say, those who would, who would make this argument. You have to make a choice. Either God is good or he is all-powerful, but he can't be both. Because if he is, the world would be a different place. And so they're left with that. Who wants to worship a God that's not good? And then the other side, who wants to worship a God that's not all-powerful? So you see the problem. And the issue is that this argument, the way that it's put, is way too simplistic. It's way too simplistic. Those type of arguments are not even applied to everyday people. Because guess what? We're more than one thing. Aren't we? Can't there be a third thing or a combination of things? Because that's what we are. We're a combination of attributes all all brought together in cohesion. And we have no problem with that. We have no problem with wisdom and being able to handle decisions. and We are more than just one thing. Anybody seen the Smurfs? That's a society based on someone being one thing. Everyone's just one thing, and that becomes their name, I guess. Right? You got Clumsy Smurf, and he's just clumsy. That's all he is. That's all he ever is. You got Brainy Smurf, and that's all he ever is. That's a way too simplistic way to look at the world. It makes for a fun cartoon, but it's not a way to look at the world. It's not realistic, right? God has to be more complex than we are. Otherwise, why in the world is he God, and why in the world are we worshiping him? Have you heard this one? Because it it leads to questions that are just so overly simplistic, they implode on themselves. So here's one question. And and sometimes the problem is actually with the question itself. Right? Have you heard this one? I'm going to change it a little bit because I don't like the original question. Have you stopped kicking puppies? Think about that question. You're trapped by that question. Right? You either admit that you have been kicking puppies in the past and now you've stopped, or no, you are currently kicking puppies. Right? I've now morally trapped you, you are evil. Right? That's all based on the question. And so you may have heard this one too. Can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? I've had someone actually ask me that as though it's a showstopper going to ask you that question, I'm going to drop the mic and leave. I just said, that's a stupid question. Because you're, you are framing this in, in such a way that is improper. What you're actually asking is, can God do something that is inherently outside of his own nature? Right? So it goes, it, it goes hand in hand with the other question, can God create another God that's equal in power to himself? If you say no, then your God's not all-powerful. If you say yes, then what keeps him from doing so, blah, 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 and it spirals on, right? 
Well, that's a stupid question. One of God's attributes is he's uncreated. So just by quality of him creating another God, even if he was equal in power and will and all the things, would be created, therefore not God. So the answer is no. It's actually okay to say no. God can't do that because it's outside his character. But when people ask questions like that, they get caught up in the question and not the answer. A lot of people don't want to wait for the answer. God is not the originator of evil. We're not going to read through them all, but we're going to put them up here on the screen. Leviticus chapter 11 talks about how God is holy and actually says that because God is holy, we also, as his followers, should also be holy, which, by the way, is a really high benchmark. Be holy. Holy meaning totally separated out from everything else. Think something that's unspotted, untouched by imperfection. We're supposed to be like that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. 1 John's great, by the way. Been quoted twice already. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is John talking about Jesus, obviously. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. There is no sin. What we actually have is Jesus Christ is perfect in the very essence of the word. There is no imperfection found in him. Every decision he made was perfect. Every act that he accomplished could not have been accomplished in any other way and still been right or good. He is absolutely perfect. And that becomes the essence of who God is. He is perfect. And I think that's actually a better way to phrase it. Rather than using sin and evil and good and things like that, he's perfect and he can't do something that's imperfect. So if you ask, if someone asks you a question and says, can God lie? No, he can't because he can't tell you something that's half truth or not true or something. He's perfect. So no, he can't lie. It's okay to say God can't do something when it's outside his own nature. Which then also would say, can God act or withhold his power and still be righteous and just? And I would say the answer is, yes, he can. Yes, he can. And I think the problem we have is perspective. This is the scenario that gets built. Because we would say God is not the originator or the author of evil. He's not the one who created it. Because it's imperfection. God did not create anything that wasn't good. He didn't do anything that was imperfect. Well, if that's the case, then we, they build this type of scenario. <clears throat> then why did God punish Adam and Eve for something so small, so silly, so stupid, like, like picking an apple. It's not really an apple, but that's what people say. Why, well, how could God do that? That's unjust. That's unfair. And I'd say, well, what, what benchmark would you rather have had? Adam, if you ax murder Eve, then you will die. That's a really weird one. Do we want to put it to the nth degree that Adam has to accomplish something so horrible? Because what this is, is this gives the opportunity to show the character. So it's sort of like this, like a parent who goes to a child and says, child, they wouldn't refer to them that, but they don't have a name. Child, go clean your room. Child decides to not clean their room. They rebel. They don't go and do it. They do something else instead. 
Well, is that child rebellious? Yes or no? Yes, it's a small thing, but yeah, this is a simple rebellion. No, I'm not going to do it. Okay, well, that's, that's a sin. That's wrong. That's in the category of moral evil. I know it's a small thing. It feels weird to call it that, but it's in the category. Now, philosophically, if the parent had not asked said child to clean their room, would they not have been innocent from then on? Would they not have rebelled? So really, whose fault is the sin, the child or the parent? So if we put it in a framework, can you see how the question is the thing that's wrong? The question's wrong. Yeah, okay, the parent could have not asked them to do that, but also then, we also wouldn't have had a opportunity to reveal the inner workings of the child, right? That's what you actually see in the garden. It was a small thing, but it was an opportunity to display the inner workings and the possibility of that rebellion, that sin, or that uh, that uh, action in truth, right? So the, the problem is with the question, right? We would say that in the scenario we built that the child is responsible for their actions, right? I think one of the best ways to see this play out is in the life of Job. We read Job. Job is a, um, it's actually a form of biblical literature that is, is actually studied in a lot of universities as, as just a beautiful ancient poem. It's studied as literature because it is that. It deals with some really big and heavy ideas. We also know that it's inspired. It is something that, it's a story that has come from God given to us to understand his character. And many of you know the story. We're going to walk through it really quick. Job, if you want to follow along, you can go to Job. We'll kind of walk through. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to Job. Job seems like a neat guy, right? Basically, he's described as being upright, upright in his generation. And as a consequence, what has God done? He's blessed him. He's given him many, many, many things. He lived in the land of Uz. I don't know who named that. Probably not Job. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There's born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants. He says that this man was the greatest in all the people of the East. And he goes on to talk about what his kids did and all these great things. Okay, so a very blessed man, upright, righteous man. All right, becomes the topic of conversation in heaven. Uh, if you look at verse 6, starting verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, oh, I'm going around. You know, you know how it is. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's no one like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him? Come on, God. You know why he follows you. He follows you because you give him all this stuff. Take away his stuff, take away his things, and he'll curse you. You know he will. And so, 
What does God do? Very odd, but it feels like a bargain is struck. Where God says, go ahead and try. Satan says, oh, I'll try. But there's boundaries. You can't touch him. Okay. So he goes out from the presence of the Lord to go and do those things. Horrible things happen to Job. Poor Job. But I do want to say, who brought this up? Who started this whole exchange? Was it Satan? Who brought up Job? Who was it? It was God. Have you considered? I mean, God should know Satan well enough to know that if he says, hey, have you noticed that this person is super righteous? That Satan's going to go, oh yeah? Just watch. Like, what do you think Satan's going to do? Okay, God's not dumb. He knows what's going on, okay? So Satan goes and he does all kinds of terrible things to him, taking away all the stuff that he has, including the death of his children. Okay? Pretty intense. But, verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22, notice, Job did not sin. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay? He didn't lash out. He acted righteously. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you actually have a similar exchange where Satan says, okay, yeah, he didn't curse you, but that's because you left his health. If you take away his health, I mean, any man will curse you if you take away his health. He says, fine, you can do that, just don't kill him. So Satan does, goes down. He gives him boils all over his body. And the term boil is, is kind of a general term. I mean, just horrible things happening to him. Horrible, horrible, horrible suffering. Did he curse God? He did not. Even in this, Job did not curse God. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Oops. This is Job later on. He gets a whole bunch of friends to come and comfort him. And he says, verse 13, God will not turn back his anger beneath the bowed help of Rahab, how can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. He even says, if I go before the Lord, there's no accusation that I can lay. He says, I myself have to lay myself at his mercy. So he's not saying that God is wrong in these things. And even if Job were to confront God, Job himself must ask for mercy. I mean, God truly has this place of worship in his mind. Even though Job is wrestling with this, he still asks God for mercy. Look at verse 22 in chapter 9. 22 through 24. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? And Job is just highlighting the fact that natural evil takes place. And yes, God sees it. But God is not held responsible for it. Chapter 38. 
We skip a lot of discussion back and forth. It's a lot of good stuff. We get to the meat of it, though. In chapter 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's like, who here is just talking without any knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I'll question you. You'll make it known to me. So God says, I'm going to ask you all these deep questions, Job. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Go ahead and tell me if you have understanding. Do it. Tell me. Where were you? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And who, I'm sorry, and when I made my clouds in the garments and thick darkness in the swaddling band, prescribed limits for the sets and the bars and the doors. This is a poetic way of talking about God creating the earth and putting everything together, all the foundations. Job, where were you when all of that was happening? And this is what God is saying. Who are you to ask me these questions? You don't think that I know all things from beginning to end? Who are you? Job? Here's what's interesting. Throughout the whole rest of the book, guess what God never tells Job? He never tells him about Satan and the bargain and all the things. He never tells him at all. So essentially what he says is, where were you? You weren't there? Okay, just keep trusting me, okay? Chapter 42, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came all his brothers and sisters who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comfort for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So even after he had all these things restored, he received tribute from his friends and his family. So the idea is this. In the end, God gave him twice as much as he had before. With the exception of his children, whom he had the same amount again, because the idea is you didn't lose the children, they're in heaven, and so you just get another dose of kids, right? So he has, he has generations to extend on. And this idea is, this is what the Lord's intention was all along, was to give him this. And now he has, in addition to that, a deep understanding that God is totally and completely in control of all these things. Beginning to end. So what we have here is a, it's a war of perspective. The Lord did not want to bring ill, calamity onto Job. That was Satan. Why did the Lord allow it? Because the end was twice as good as it was before. It just meant that he had to walk through suffering to get there. Psalm 23 This is a very familiar psalm to us. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. For most people, they'd say, I don't want to go through there. God, why are you making me walk through here? Because they don't have the understanding that God is the one walking with them. And to what end? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Right, look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, pursue me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's leading them, his sheep, to good pasture. He's leading them to a good thing. And the best thing happens to walk through the path. You have to happen to walk through the path of, of the shadow of death to get to the best thing. The passage this morning that really puts all these bits together is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts, this is God talking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. From the vantage point of God, he can see the end. He can see where we're going. So if you do hold that God is good, then we have to trust that if the path we're taking leads us through evil, that that must mean that whatever's on the other side is worth it. It's worth it. Especially for us who are the followers of God. Do we trust that God is leading us properly? Do we trust that God has a plan or is he making it up as he goes? He knows. So at the point of time where Adam and Eve sin, could he have completely started over? He could have. He would have to go against all the promises that he had just made to them, so he didn't. Could he have done something to where they wouldn't feel the effects of sin? I suppose. But the thing is, he already established the rules. He already told them that they would rule, and here are the rules. And so what God did was he found a way, he found a plan that would lead them back to Eden. And it is the gospel. It was the plan. It was given in Genesis chapter 3. The trick is, is that it led them through the effects of sin. A whole world, a whole universe had to go through the effects of sin to reach the best destination. That's not an evil God. That's a God with perspective. If he had halted the whole thing, we all would have missed out on our lives, on this universe, and on the promise that we have of resurrection. We would have missed out on all of that. What it really comes down to is when you start to put these pieces together is... If God is good and he knows the beginning, uh, if he knows from the beginning, he knows the end, and from the end, he knows the beginning. And if he is all-powerful, then can he be trusted? The real question is, is God a real God of justice? And I think that's really where that question leads us. If God is good and God allows evil, can we trust 
that he is just. That just so happens to be our topic for next week. Justice and judgment of God. That's what we will be discussing. So the big question for us as we leave, do we really believe that God is all-powerful? Do we believe that God is a God of justice? And as we think through these things, and we have these discussions, and we really kind of go back and forth on this idea and the concept of, of sin and evil existing on its own, do we trust that there is a God who has a vantage point to see all those things and how they play out? And it really is the difference between just being a philosopher and being a follower of God. We're just going to sit around and talk about evil, the effects and how unfair it is and all those things, or are we going to follow a God who is good and be his representative on earth? Father, we know that your ways are so much higher than our ways. We know that your plans are perfect from beginning to end. You know the right way to go. You know where we are headed. You have not left anything to chance. You, our God, are a wise and loving shepherd. You're a good king. You're a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Lord, I pray that as some of us are feeling the effects of some kind of evil, whether that is a natural type of evil or it's even a moral evil, someone has done wrong to us, Lord, I do pray that you give us a godly perspective to know and to understand that you, as our Father, have our best in mind. Lord, I pray as we go from here that we'd go out rejoicing knowing that our God has our good in mind. And Lord, that we would trust and be patient while you faithfully lead us, even if it does carry us through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, I pray that we would be those who have a proper perspective on this earth. Lord, we love you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus.